New Thinking Aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring varieties of meditative experience, particularly as experienced by Americans and other Westerners since the counterculture of the 1960s. My guest today is Matthew Ingram, who's in London. He's the author of Retreat, How the Counterculture Invented Wellness. And now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Matthew. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. Thanks very much, Jeffrey, and uh, I'm looking forward to our, our conversation. Well, we're going to deviate a little bit from the counterculture and uh, the work on uh, its contribution to wellness in your book, Retreat. We're going to talk specifically about meditation, which is a vast subject, and I'd like to begin by asking you about your own interest. I know, for example, you did travel to India, so I assume you have a very serious interest in this subject. I've meditated since I was probably probably about 30 years now um, in a sort of Vipassana style, um, just sort of bare attention. But in the course of the book, um, I started uh, using a mantra, um, which is a very different dynamic. Um, and I, so I sort of mix them up a bit. Um, so I do a mantra every day and, uh, and so I, it's something that I get a lot out of and it's, it's very sort of soothing and, you know, you feel connected to something bigger than yourself. I'm aware that when I talk about meditation, it can mean many different things to different people. And I think that's because people meditate for different reasons. Some people, uh, want to clear their mind. Other people want insight into themselves. Other people want to uh, develop greater power of uh, concentration. Uh, I imagine that when we uh, look at uh, your life or the people that you studied going back to how meditation came to the United States in a big way starting in the 1960s, many of these different motives get intertwined with each other. On, on the one level, there's a confusion of, of how the, of the different traditions were in this transition, especially around the counterculture and that era. So, so there's a big mixture. And in a way, we still, we still live with that legacy of that combination. So we have, uh, you know, different techniques, you know, sometimes packaged up together where actually they have, uh, they can be disentangled and, and they're actually quite, different aims, different end aims. I mean, the, I mean, the classic example is um, of a sort of a Vedic or Vedanta style meditation with, you know, the use of a mantra. So for instance, in the sixties, uh, the Hare Krishna movement and transcendental meditation were very big on that. Uh, and then with that style, you have the sort of what they call the Buddhist called Samatha, which is a concentration on a, a fixed object. And those styles are very much about clearing the mind. And, and the analogy is, is often used in the Vedas of, of, of a lake with, um, you know, cloudy waters and, and waves on the surface. And the whole idea with that style of meditation is to calm the lake. And when the lake is calm, you can see the bottom. And the bottom is 
is the big gift, which is the self, um, which is this cosmic gift. And then there's the Buddhist style of meditation, which is called, um, you know, bear attention or, or Vipassana. Um, and, and that's very much about being in the present and feeling your emotions. It's not an escapist sense. But I think, you know, it, 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 and those, um, those currents came over in the counterculture. Um, and certainly in the counterculture, the, in the first instance, the, the impetus to transcend and to use the Vedic style or the mantra in that sense was the strongest one because that was the impetus of, of that movement. So, uh, but yes, it's a, it's a, as you say, as you mentioned, it's a huge subject and as very complicated cross currents. But um, those are the two big ones that, that, that came across. Well, I know that in your writing, you emphasize the fact that it's very hard to isolate meditation from the culture in, in which it arose or in which it's practiced. And when meditation came to North America and to Europe from Asia, you have a mingling of some very, very different cultures. And so on top of all of the different schools of meditation and styles of meditation and purposes for meditation, you, in addition, you have this culture clash going on, which I should think adds an enormous amount of chaos to the process of integrating meditative practices into Western society. These are practices that have generated, come to being over, you know, hundreds, sometimes thousands of years, and they're embedded in cultures um, very explicitly. And then they came over, you know, as, you know, sort of isolated packages and were recontextualized. I mean, one of the first examples is, and this was infuriating, I know, for the Mahesh Maharishi Yogi. When, when he came over to San Francisco, all the newspapers described transcendental meditation as a new form of medicine. And in the first case, he was absolutely like, this is, this is, this is not what we're going to, what we're about at all. But then I think he thought, well, you know, maybe we should work with this. And if this is how, you know, it, it slots into the, um, the prevailing culture, uh, let's run with it. But, um, you know, in all of these instances, there was a, a lot of stuff lost in translation uh, and a lot of stuff was confused. But so, for instance, in terms of things being lost in translation, um, the likes of, uh, you know, DT Suzuki or uh, Chogam Chumpra, they, they would br bring these techniques over, especially the Buddhist techniques. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, key elements, for instance, uh, you know, non-attachment or compassion would be discarded um, and you know you have you know the meditation on its own and obviously that's caused confusion and you know social confusion as well as you know cultural confusion. I gather that uh, the people who were initially attracted to meditative practices largely came out of the counterculture. That's one of the reasons in the first place that they took a strong interest in Asian traditions in general is something alternative to Western spiritual traditions. And, and that created a, a funny dynamic because many of these gurus really wanted to reach the mainstream of America and, and Europe, not necessarily the fringes. That's exactly right. Uh, and um, 
I mean, to, to, to choose a different uh, example, um, Pradupad, who the um, the uh, Hare Krishna guru, uh, you know, he was uh, he came over to uh, New York in 1965 at uh, about the age of 70, um, and uh, you know he didn't really know have any inkling of, of who his audience would be or or who the people were um and uh, you know he, he he wasn't enamored of hippies in particular uh, and uh, and obviously the maharish Maharish yogi his his first audience was very up uptight um well uptight they were sort of uh, you know smart 50s uh, women with uh, beautiful hairdos and accountants and and the like so, so when you know the likes of Prudence Fire Bruns and whenever we're, we're joining the uh, the early transcendental meditation classes, you know they were in a distinct minority. Even in London, they weren't full of hippies at all. It was it was working people, and and, and that was what he wanted to appeal to. Well, when the Beatles went over to India and studied with the Maharishi, that single event seemed to have a, an enormous cultural ripple. Everybody was watching. I mean, the, you know, the, the the level of the attention on them, especially in that kind of era of you know narrow band media, where unlike you know the internet, where we have hundreds of channels in, in the UK, I think we probably had two television channels. You know, everything was focused on them. Um, I mean, you know, to to go back to the Hare Krishnas, I know that when they saw um, on uh, television the uh, the uh, Beatles with um, Maharishi Yogi and Rishikesh. They actually decided from their base in San Francisco that they needed to send somebody to London to capture George Harrison, uh, to capture their own Beatle. Um, and so, you know, everybody was watching, everybody was paying attention, everybody was following what they did. So, yeah, I mean, I think it was, um, you know, the single most important event in, in many respects. Uh, and in many in, on many levels, um, the the book is a, a Beatles book. I mean, they 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 come through so many of these uh, different disciplines, and 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 I gather it was a rather eventful time. The the Beatles went to India. They were there, I think, sincerely to study meditation with the Maharishi and. He was probably caught up in the glamour uh, of that, uh, and the uh, news. But as I recall, the Beatles left uh, very disillusioned. I think the, the the most authoritative version I've heard is that that he did um, he he felt up um, Maya Farrow. Um, you know, I think she describes feeling his little hands uh, going up her in the dark, um, and um, and then. Through the agency of this uh, uh, Greek electronics guru, um, who Apple had um, got hold of, who was sort of t tailing them at the time, called Alex Mardus, um, he, he stirred the pot, um, and they all stormed off and um, said, uh, you know, uh, you know, legendarily giving us the sort of uh, sexy Sadie song, which is obviously uh, sexy Sadu, but um, but I mean the thing was for 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 a long time, I think uh, Maharishi Yogi feigned ignorance and and pretended that he didn't know what it was go what was going on i think there was a i think it was six months later that uh, he he actually one of his followers um sort of he asked them so what was it all about what was it all about and um and they said well you know they said that you uh you you fondled up one of one of the women and and his his remark but you was um but don't they know that i'm 
I'm a renunciate. You know, I would never do that. And and actually, and over time, there's been a lot of, um, you know, a, a lot of uh, things have come out of the woodwork. There's a a book written by a woman called uh, Judith Bork. Um, I think it's uh, robes of uh, robes of clay feet of clay robes of silk or uh, and describing you know the extended affair he had with her and you know how he then subsequently went on to other women and so i mean you know he i think he was always at it really this was a time of the sexual liberation movement the birth control pill had become quite popular uh there was i think it was even referred to as a sexual revolution going on people were taking psychedelic drugs and and when you combine that with what is sometimes a very austere movement of monastic meditation you've you've really got a, an interesting stew brewing the, the the connection with with the drugs is 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 very interesting um because i think i know as as you pointed out in um, you know in previous conversations that we've had you know that the the vedic um tradition you know had previously had some accommodation uh, for that and even when the beatles were there they would have seen um you know sadhus smoking charis um but uh, so so the psychedelic aspect was very much you know hand in hand with with the meditation side of it you also had uh, gurus like uh, chogyam trumpa coming over uh, uh, emphasizing i think what they referred to as the crazy wisdom tradition which is that a truly spiritual enlightened person is completely unconstrained by social mores and I interviewed Trump uh, at one time. I think we discussed it in a previous interview. He was chain smoking. And I understand that uh, he was a heavy drinker and uh, also uh, felt quite comfortable having sex with his students. And and in fact, many, many uh, of the meditation teachers and gurus fell into this, I have to call it a trap, of getting sexually involved with their students. With often damaging consequences. Yes, I mean uh, there was a, a a very sort of a, a landmark survey done in um, 1984 by uh, the um, the Vipassana teacher uh, Jack Cornfield, um, and I think he interviewed I think it was 80 um, teachers of various disciplines, and like over 50 percent of them had had slept with their students, uh, and there was a particularly uh, nasty uh, denouement uh, in Trumpa's case it wasn't directly uh, related to him but his um, his lead abbot I think it was Ozil Tendik or some was um, infected with AIDS and was was sleeping with his uh, you know his his, uh, his students uh, and infected a, a lot of them with AIDS but I mean I mean that's just the tip of the iceberg I think it was you know uh, Satchidananda I know slept with his students uh, Muktananda has a lot of very shady uh, business there um, you know uh, it goes r- right the way through and obviously Trungpa as you've mentioned um, and as Maharishi Yogi as we've talked about I think people are put in a quite a, a receptive state and I think you know there was an idealized vision of, of these of these people and I think it must have been terribly sad for uh for a, a man or a, or or a woman to 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 uh, to go into that position of, of you know 
seeking help, seeking guidance, uh, and to find oneself, um, you know, being used sexually. Uh, and obviously there were people who, you know, you know, there were group, this is the era of the groupie after all. Um, there were people who, who willingly slept with, you know, a, a guru. But, you know, I think that in, in many cases, it does seem like, you know, it was an exploitative relationship. There is a sense that you want to get close to a person who seems closer to the truth, closer to God. And uh, the idea of having an intimate sexual encounter with a, a true guru uh, undoubtedly is uh, was very attractive to many disciples. I have no doubt of that. Oh, that's right. If we go back, though, to the very beginning, it seems to me the early beat generation, people like Allen Ginsberg, who had enormous psychological problems, uh, spent a lot of time with psychiatrists, as did Ramdas, uh, sought meditation as a, a a form of psychotherapy. Really, yes, uh, that's right. And you know, I think we we you know we've briefly mentioned um, how uh, when Maharishi Yogi came, it was meditation was described as a, as a form of medicine but there was a sort of an intellectual tradition especially around zen um whereby it was understood um the buddhist buddhism especially was a start understood as a, as a form of, of psychotherapy so you know writings by eric from or uh, and obviously jung wrote the introduction to tibetan book of the dead um and you know it was uh and, and Alan Watts as well wrote a, a very um, wonderful book, uh, Psychoanalysis East and West, which which looked explicitly at how you know the the guru, uh, the the roshi, or is in Zen, was essentially someone who was um, forcing a state of kind of what would be Jung would describe as as individuation by um, by you know interacting with a student by forcing a student by essentially breaking their ego down and so although in fact you know in buddhism um that people look slightly askance at this and like oh no here come the jungians um but you know i, I think that it's unmistakable similarities between the processes um and yes absolutely ginsburg um ginsburg who was a therapy junkie um you know came to you know the mantra for instance as as a form of um you know um as a technique for for cutting his rumination um and you know he 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 approached you know buddhism the zazen the process of, of sitting as a you know a, in, in an authentic enough way uh, as a as a way of dealing with trauma processing trauma and that whole process of sitting and just being with those sticky emotions and those unpleasant feelings is you know it's akin in a way to the process of psychoanalysis we sit with a a a, 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 a psychoanalyst and um and just you know say what's on your mind i mean there's an equivalence at the same time as we've discussed in our interview previously on the human potential movement and incidentally i'm going to link to it in case uh, viewers haven't seen it it's a wonderful interview many forms of of new therapy were being developed in in the west and you have a wonderful story about uh, the primal scream therapists and how they 
I think it was they came to Jack Cornfield for meditative experience, and it was something of a conflict for them. Am I supposed to emote or am I supposed to hold it all in? Cornfield just advised them, just, you know, don't go with this sort of, well, ab reaction uh, principle, but just, you know, sit with your with your feelings. And I think they all were like, oh, God, we do, we need to, we need to be screaming. But um, and he was like, no, just sit with it. And and I think it, you know, had tremendous, you know, help with them. There's that there's that principle of, um, or you know, when you are in meditation, you you have that process of of sitting with, you know, sitting with unpleasant feelings or sitting with you know trauma or, or or your feelings even if they're negative even if they're positive feelings you know there's that sense of observing you know you're, you're looking at your feelings from a, a unique perspective and uh, and, and I, I always think that you know that perspective is is one akin to the self you know you're you're surveying your ego from the position of the self but there's lots of um I mean, the, the, the connection continues even today. So, for instance, um, you know, the, the, uh, the new strains of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, they hybridize, are sort of hybridized with mindfulness. As a, uh, and, and obviously the whole mindfulness thing as practiced by or as developed by, you know, John Kabat-Zinn in, in Massachusetts, you know, the man who wrote uh, A Full Catastrophe Living, and that too um, – you know, it approaches the whole thing. You know, it was it was based out of a hospital. The, the first, you know, and I think he's still based out of a hospital. You know, uh, dealing with um, people with very traumatic um, and difficult personal lives. Um, you know, he, he brought mindfulness to that. Essentially, removing um, the uh, you know the the Eastern trappings of Buddhism and just introducing mindfulness as a technique, sitting with those emotions. And so, you know, that, that, that connection between, you know, therapy and uh, meditation that was established in the countercultural era, you know, it's still, you know, it's almost tighter now than it ever was. Well, I uh, did a series of interviews many years ago with a Vipassana teacher, Shinzen Young, who pointed out to me that, that he felt Vipassana meditation could be used to cure addictions, even as severe as a heroin addiction, that if you sit with your cravings and you come to realize that it's just neurons firing and you have an aversion to the sensations, but you can detach yourself from all of that and you don't have to act on those cravings. Yes, I, and it's it's very like the um, the, uh, the gestalt, you know, the Fritz Perls gestalt therapy idea of um, proprioception, where you're um, you're you're watching the body, you're paying attention to the body, and uh, and, and that that process of how that works. I think the example you give uh, uh, of Shinzen Young it, it is very interesting as well because um, I think it shows how that process particular of meditation um, has, you know, if you drill down to its absolute essence, has at its core the ideas of, of non-attachment. And so, you know, we tend to see uh, meditation used out of context. But, but with that idea of sitting with your feelings and observing your feelings, you know, right there, there is this idea of, you know, you know, in a positive way, withdrawing, standing back, not clinging, not clinging to anything, which which is a fundamental Buddhist principle. Um, and so, uh, 
you know, that's a, a very good example of, of how the Buddhist practice, you know, is in some ways more sophisticated than the, uh, the, the later version. So the, the, the mindfulness has, as it, as it now exists in apps and things, you know, you have to pursue it to its logical conclusion to, you know, to, to get the real meaning of it. Well, I think in the West, it, it was the case that a lot of people have gravitated to meditation because what it could do for them. You could be more successful in business if you can calm yourself down, or your health will improve, or you work through your emotional problems, uh, or, you, you know, you might become a better actor or an actress, or you'll be more beautiful, more radiant uh, as a person. But I gather that uh, in the original teachings, uh, none of those things were uh, considered the purpose of meditation. That's completely correct. But it's such a, a big, a big subject. I mean, um, you know, so for instance, you know, Mahesh Maharishi Yogi, you know, his, his brand of um, Vedic meditation, TM, you know, he would always advise against um, practitioners using the Omkara, so saying Om, because in his view, that would dissolve their personality too much. And that, you know, if you were a, what, what they describe as a householder and you did the Omkara, you know, you would soon find you didn't have, your, you'd lose your wife, you'd lose your house. Your, so, 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 so there does exist you know, in some sense, you know, that concern for the ego. Um, but, but absolutely, I mean, the, the idea of, of, of ethics is certainly one which has, uh, has, has gone missing. I mean, my, I have a colleague um, who's written an excellent book, Mindfulness, um, which is a very sharp critique of how mindfulness has, has completely forgotten this ethical component. Well, there's some very interesting examples of people who have engaged in meditation for a variety of purposes, and it didn't even apparently work for them. Uh, you write about Jack Kerouac, for example, who, who really got heavily into meditation, but died uh, as a severe alcoholic. Kerouac's case is, is interesting from, from a lot, lot of points of view. Um, I think not least because um, there was a tradition or there was a sense that the the american importation of these disciplines did happen a long time uh, many times alongside drugs alongside stimulants and and i know that kerouac um you know the, the, as i say trumper was someone who who actually spoke openly about the use of alcohol within meditation um and uh, you know um i think that marijuana was was reasonably uh um reasonably accepted as well i mean it was part of part parcel of that whole culture as it came to to america and you know there are arguments that you know that it belonged in there i know that you know that there are arguments that the use of drugs you know certainly going back to looking at the rig Veda and the, the the use of soma there that that, that drugs belonged in that mix um but but you know you know there's arguments and counter arguments but but um but when Kerouac's case you know i think that you know i know that he uh, he visited uh, dt suzuki and who 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 could see that you know he was he was someone who who was struggling with alcohol um and he uh, he tried to turn 
Kerouac onto Matcha, which is, you know, the, the ground green tea as a kind of a, a legitimate high that he could use to, you know, spice up his meditation. But I, I think that, you know, Kerouac was 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 too too uh, too troubled a soul, um, and uh, you know, in spite of his best efforts to to, to leave alcohol behind, you know, it, it got the better of him in the end. These days, there is a concept. I've done an interview about it. They, it's referred to as a spiritual bypass, where people get involved in yoga and meditation, and uh, they may achieve a measure of tranquility. But at the same time, they're not doing the inner work of addressing their their problems. And uh, as a result, sooner or later, those problems come back to bite them. You know, this is this is the problem w- with meditation. Um, you know, it's uh, especially some forms of meditation. I think the uh, the the Vedic. I, I make the distinction between you know etheric meditation. So those techniques of the mantra, for instance, that you know point one more towards the self uh, and um, can generate their own natural high um, and. Um, and those especially, uh, I think, can have a uh, create sort of a, a quite a withdrawn personality. Uh, you know, e- even um, Buddhist uh, meditation, you know, could um, could do the same thing and create, like you say, a, a spiritual bypass. And I think it's um, it's a, it's a it's a it's a case of getting in touch with, you know, those uh, those core principles. I mean, the uh, the whole concept even of Vedic meditation is that, you know, if consciousness, you know, is our individual consciousness is a, uh, a small fraction of the entire consciousness. And so from that principle, you know, we can argue that, you know, if I c- cut my brother, I'm cutting myself. And so, you know, that, that sense of compassion that's inherent in that idea often goes, goes missing. But Jung was very, very strong on that. And he, he, he was, he, he also believed in this idea of pathogenic sin, which is also quite strong in, in, in the Vedic traditions that, you know, um, you know, we are all miserable sinners, you know. Um, and so um, that, that connecting to that sense of compassion, you know, it should be a vital component of, of meditation. Uh, but regrettably, it, it so easily ca- cannot be. Now, I have the impression that in Asia, in China, and in particularly in India, the cultures from which meditation arose, that actually only a tiny percentage of the population are regular practitioners of, of meditation. If they're in an ashram or uh, some sort of a, a, a monastery, the average person doesn't necessarily practice meditation uh, at all. But uh, here in the West now, it's becoming uh, more of a mass movement. People are encouraged to practice meditation in all walks of life. And and I suppose as a result of that, uh, the practice is actually spreading more across the uh, cultures of Asia as well, would you say? I think it's very possible that I mean there was th- these um, that these currents um, bounced backwards and forwards. I mean the, the uh, certainly in my research it was it was very striking the way, for instance, um, Osho was very fascinated by the psychoanalytic ideas of Wilhelm Reich. Um, or there's the almost extraordinary uh, situation whereby um, 
the Pradupad, the Hare Krishna leader, you know, he visits uh, India with uh, in 1970, I think it was, with with these, uh, you know, what he described as his dancing white elephants. But obviously, all his students were uh, were white Westerners, and I think that the the crowds seeing them, you know, parading through the streets were just, you know, astonished. So yeah, I mean, I think the, these the, that's the way culture works. It's not straightforward. Uh, and I, I think it's, it's it's very possible that you know um, meditation c- could go like that. I mean, I think it's uh, partly the the context of the fact that a lot of people engage with it through these apps, which is immediately uh, you know a globalized phenomenon on people's uh, telephones. So it's not really attached to anything anymore in that pure sense, which is you know it's interesting. Well, uh, one of the big uh, impetuses in Western meditation was when Herbert Benson wrote the book, The Relaxation Response, in which he tried to take the essence of transcendental meditation and isolate it completely from uh, its uh, spiritual context and simply say, you know, 20 minutes of repeating a soothing syllable twice a day helps uh, the whole nervous system and uh, helps reduce stress. I think that uh, did a lot to sort of introduce the practice into mainstream culture because now that I think about it, many Christian organizations were very askance at the idea that uh, Westerners would be practicing uh, a form of uh, a Hindu ritual. Yes, and, and I think there were very. There was a very similar uh, case where there was a book called Stretching, which was just yoga repackaged. Um, um, so I think uh, the Christian institutions seem to be uh, much more relaxed about meditation now. I know my my mother-in-law, who's a Christian, she meditates. Um, I think that there is one interesting aspect that 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 is that slightly goes missing in that translation, which is that the process for a sort of a transcendental transcendental effect. I think that the um, well, Ramakrishna, the uh, who, who whose uh, gospel of Ramakrishna was was very you know, widely read in the countercultural era. You know, his formula for Vedic meditation is is go to a quiet place. So this idea of withdrawal or pratyahara, which is a kind of form of sensory deprivation, and say God's name, which you know, in his case would have been uh, Kali, or you know, because he he was a Kali worship, or you know, Krishna, or, or, or and so. And the the way that this kind of uh, devotional uh, mechanism works so exquisitely is that you tune in to the uh, this kind of mode of ad- adoration and this kind of focal point of of obsession in a way of this kind of spiritual container, uh, and that you sort of pour your affection into it. It's the same kind of uh, dynamic that people have when they make a sort of personal altar or something like that. And you you pour all your affection and your attention and your love in, in some ways quite similar to the way people um, would have reacted to the Beatles. They would have had Beatles posters on their walls and, you know, they would have cradled the uh, Sergeant Pepper's record cover. And, and, and that kind of, that sort of... Um, focus requires some object of its affection and so this is one of the masterful dimensions of hindu culture with all this 
pantheon of gods you could just get so into ganesh or you can get really into you know vishnu and you can all shiva and you can say shiva's name over and over again and you can imagine shiva in these contexts and and again with the the, the buddhist context you have you know your mahakala and you can just really get into mahakala or you can really get into avalokiteshvara and you can imagine him and you can and, and i think that when you when you remove that sort of context you you end up with something which is less potent so so the example you give in a benson's book with you know just saying a word over and over again takes out some of that transcendental power that is inherent in the meditation process in my in my view i think within buddhism itself which is only one branch of a, of a meditative tradition you have the vajrayana uh, techniques uh, which involve detailed visualizations and close connection with a tutelary deity on the other hand you have zen which uh, is very minimalist. The idea is really just be here now. You don't need anything special. Just appreciate the moment. You don't even have to close your eyes. No, yes, so you just sit there. That that process of zazen, where you you sit and uh, you you know you just be in the present. That's very much like the uh, vipassana um, aspect of of you know a sort of integral meditation i would see it and then like you say on the other hand you know the vajrayana with these visualizations so the mandala um i, I and, and you know as a kind of a, a technique of visualization and you you imagine yourself entering the mandala going through these different states i mean um, the lama govinda's book uh, foundations of tibetan mysticism is 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 fascinating on this and, and on on the processes and, and the ideas of of the mandala and 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 how the mantras endlessly profound meanings map onto that and i think that you know there's i mean though those for me are, are very much like two, two poles um you know uh, in a way the, the zen sh shares a lot with the you know the theravadan meditation which uh, the vipassana or sati satipatthana i think it is um and that sort of you know uh bare attention and um clear comprehension which is those those principles of, of that um so so yeah i mean it, it, it's a full spectrum and and it's it's never it's never one thing or the other you know i mean even um you know ramakrishna who, who was i always strikes me as being you know a sort of example of of the person who who most embodies that transcendental style of meditation um you know, he he would go into these extraordinary fainting spells uh, of samadhi, where he would be intoxicated by this sort of divine um, divine energy, and and would literally he would he would he would zonk out, and his pupils, his students would stand around, like, oh my god, he's in samadhi again. Um, but even he 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 would say, you know that you know that the, the ego exists, you know that I can only go into these states for. You know a few hours and, and then i come back from them so and he would he, he would also use you know different techniques and trungpa would advise his uh his students to do vipassana and samatha so so they would concentrate on objects like a flame or a picture which is very much this etheric style of clearing the water and on the other side trungpa would, would ask them just to sit there he said to ginsburg 
the essence of it is you must you must sit uh, and uh, which is of course you know the other aspect so so yeah I mean it's it's never it's never clear cut in this day and age uh, you and I and the viewers of this channel are the inheritors of all of these traditions and including, I should mention, various Western forms of meditation that have been around for centuries. And it seems to me, maybe just because I'm something of a dilettante, it's okay to practice a variety of techniques, to to become familiar with them all. It's part of the language of consciousness in our culture right now. Well, I think that's a very, a very balanced way of looking at it, and I think that that's uh, that's right. I mean, it's it's part of the uh, the language of uh, of meditation. I, I think it's um, I think it would be helpful for people to be able to distinguish between one and the other. I mean, in my own practice, you know, I, I do the uh, you know the the vipassana, the bare attention. I do that very often, all the time, uh, and. And then, and then I can I sort of titrate it with if I just do that on, on its own. Sometimes I find myself getting despondent or ruminating. And then if I use the mantra, you know, it's like a pick me up. It's a bit like having uh, you know uh, you know uh, something to bring you up, and something to bring you down. But I think that there is a problem in some respects um, with the confusion. I, I certainly, from my view, of that dynamic. Um, something like uh, you know mindfulness, uh, Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness is is a huge um, collision of you know proprioception, so Gestalt therapy ideas um, and um, self hypnosis ideas and ideas of visualization and, and and I think it gets a bit harder to tell where you're going. I mean, if you don't, if you can't see what tool is being used for what, then I think it's, uh, it's confusing. I think it's very useful to have a clear sense of why you want to meditate in the first place. I know I, for example, did an interview, I'll link to it now, with Stefan Schwartz, a parapsychologist who provided insight into his preferred method of meditation. And basically, it was problem solving. He said, think of a problem that you need to solve and then go into a quiet space and, and wait. And uh, very often after 20 minutes or so, an answer will come up for you. It seems very useful, very practical and uh, relaxing at the same time, but, but quite different than what we've been talking about so far. That sounds very reasonable it's it's quite like that thing of when one's sitting at a desk staring at a screen or can't figure it out you go and you know you know on a superficial level you go go around for a walk around the block and you know there's your there's your solution i mean and i mean you know if i've if i've simplified it too much into this idea of you know integral and etheric meditation there is that whole uh, there is an aspect of um the uh, buddhist meditation of which is the clear comprehension i think i might have mentioned it in passing which is really a sort of an evaluation uh, it's a sort of often an ethical evaluation so the dalai lama who you know gets up at two in the morning to meditate he's often he's he might say that the tara mantra or something like that but often he's just thinking about about uh, a problem or thinking about um how he could do something better i, I always um I always think there's an interesting passage in um, 
How to Win Friends and Influence People, which is also, I think, a very interesting book, the Dale Carnegie book, where as an industrialist who every night he goes to bed and he thinks about a um, how he could have been handle, handled his day better, you know, how, how he could have been more generous, uh, less judgmental, you know, more skillful in the Buddhists would, would describe it. And so, so that too is a form of, of meditation. Well, now we're getting into a very broad area that I would call inner work. When, you know, when you're quiet and, and you go inside of your mind, there are probably an infinite number of things that you might do. Carl Jung engaged in what he called active imagination to explore the depths of his own unconscious mind. Other people who are Edison used to take naps, and, and in his naps he would come up with inventions. It was sort of his form of, of meditation. There is a sense in which I think people have the right and they have the power to define for themselves how they want to work with their own consciousness, with their mind-body system. It was very interesting that you, you mentioned the, the, the young and the active imagination. Um, that, that's always, uh, it's, it's interesting because as well that there's that, um, that aspect of, of, of meditation that is an appeal to something that is outside of ourselves. Um, and so it does share share with with, for instance, the the your colleague that you've mentioned who who asks for you know answers to to problems. Uh, it's just almost like a sense that something larger than ourselves that that's guiding us. In my own case, as a teenager, I learned self-hypnosis. And sometimes when I teach courses on meditation, visualization, self-hypnosis, the distinctions are very, very subtle. I think it's all part of a spectrum. I was able to use self-hypnosis very successfully as a young person to, to prepare myself for exams in school. It was a wonderful tool, and I can't say that I think it's very different from meditation at all. When you asked me earlier on whether I meditated, I meant to ask you back, and so I'm glad that you uh, you volunteered that information. That's that's very interesting. Well, Matthew Ingram has been a real pleasure having this conversation with you. I, I know we could talk for uh, centuries about meditation, and it's been practiced for centuries, and it's, it's a good conversation to keep coming back to over and over again. But this has been a delight, and as have our previous interviews been a delight, I want to once again encourage our viewers to take a look at your book, Retreat, How the Counterculture Invented Wellness. It's a marvelous book, scintillating writing. Uh, I hope to have you back on New Thinking Aloud often in the future, Matthew. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. I mean, it's the honor has been all mine. Thank you. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us.